Good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and I will be bringing the word today. Today is our last sermon in our Psalm series, and we will be reading from Psalm 133. This is a Psalm about unity, and it's an appropriate segue because the, the following sermon series will be actually about community. So here is Psalm 133. You could turn there together. It's also going to be projected for you. And let's give our attention and reverence, for this is the reading of God's word. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. From there, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Amen. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. A couple, a couple things just to note right off the bat. The word unity here, uh, this Hebrew word can be translated simply as being together, togetherness. And also this is a Psalm of David. And This psalm would have had tremendous significance for David as he looked back on his own life and as we all together think about 2 Samuel 5 when David is anointed as king and all the elders of Israel, they gather together and they make this covenant together and it would have been such a great celebration of unity. Or perhaps this psalm, Psalm 133, was sung and recited with a sense of longing Uh, even pain, as even David experienced disunity in his own household, where his son Absalom uh, led a rebellion against him and tried to usurp his throne. And and he really felt the full effect of that prophecy, that the sword would never depart from David's household. Or even similarly, after David's reign, even after Solomon's reign, this psalm would have had a a poignancy and, and some longing and pain attached to it as Israel was no longer a united monarchy when the kingdom was even divided into northern and southern kingdoms. And I'm sure this is a poignant psalm for all of us listening in now. As we long for unity, as you look around you, especially as we experience the unity or lack of unity rather in our own country, uh, as we see just the divisiveness and Uh, the polarization as elections draw near, as we hear again, yet again, of another shooting of an unarmed black man, Jacob Blake, and as even things like COVID-19 and how we're supposed to respond to that seems to be and feels very politicized, where people seem to be saying opposite things about how we're supposed to respond to this pandemic. And perhaps it's not just disunity you see outside in the world, but even inside in our churches, in our families. And we all need to take a good long look at Psalm 133. It's, a, it's, a, it's such a short psalm, only three verses, and yet it does so well to point us to this blessed unity that only God provides. The first thing we see in Psalm 133 is that unity doesn't mean we all have to be the same. It doesn't mean we all have to be the same. This psalm consists basically of two images of unity, two illustrations of unity where uh, different parts are 
connected through something. In the first illustration, we see oil connecting the head of Aaron to his beard, to his robe. And then in the, in the other illustration, we see the dew connecting Mount Hermon to Mount Zion. And these two mountains couldn't be more different. Mount Hermon was a snow-capped mountain in the north and, and the tallest mountain in the promised land. Uh, Mount Zion in that area is a very dry area in the south. And it's not very tall. You might even just call it a hill. And yet this dew in this psalm, this illustration of unity connects these two very different mountains. And the idea is unity doesn't mean we all have to be the same. In fact, unity is the, the definition of unity is connecting those who are different, even connecting those who disagree. Unity doesn't mean that we all have to agree about everything. It doesn't mean that we all have to have absolute conformity, that we all have to sound and look exactly the same. No. In fact, if you think about it, there is no need for a call to unity that we see here in Psalm 133 and throughout the Bible. If we're all just the same, we wouldn't need that call. There's going to be disagreements. There's going to be disagreements about how we do certain things. Uh, I remember it, this may not be as relevant in the Asian American church, but I, I know there's often been disagreements about schooling for parents. Uh, the, the difference between homeschooling and private school and public school. And I'll, uh, of course, for all of us now, for all of our parents now, it is a little more of a relevant topic considering all our parents are full-time tutors now as well because of having to stay at home. I remember growing up in the church, there were different disagreements about music in the church. What sort of music should we be singing? What sort of songs should we be singing? And of course, it goes without saying that there's going to be people with different political views in the same church. And the point is not that we shouldn't have different views or that we shouldn't have strong views even or that we shouldn't talk about them. That's not the point because we're going to have our differences. But the real question is, can you dwell together? Like it says in verse 1 of Psalm 133, quite literally, can you live together? And even more than that, can you even Bless each other despite our differences and disagreements. I can't help but think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul says in verses 16 and 17, If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And Paul's point is the body is actually better off because it has different parts and because not all the parts are the same. That is what unity does for us. And it's actually a beautiful picture of marriage as well for those of you who are married or who are looking forward to being married. In marriage, you get two very different people who are brought together they're different because of their gender. They're different because of their wiring, their personalities. They're different because of their backgrounds and the ways that they were raised. And despite these differences, marriage is beautiful because such different people can be also united and, and become one. Of course, that's also why marriage is hard. It's so hard because people, these two people are going to be so different. 
But nevertheless, it's also the beauty of that unity. And in any thriving relationship, be it marriage or the church, it's in our differences that we actually bless each other. We learn from each other. We sharpen each other. It's only because we're different that we can actually point out blind spots in one another. You know, if you're always just around people who are exactly the same as you, who always agree with you, who talk and look just like you, it's going to be pretty hard to point out any blind spots or to see any blind spots for that matter. But you can do that because of our differences. That's what happens when we have true unity. Now, did you know that Jesus actually said in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, that he came to bring division? Yes, he did say that. You could look that up on your own, Luke 12, 51. But when Jesus said that, if you read that passage, he's saying that about the, the most important things. He came to bring division when it comes to who he is, what he came to do here on this earth, who God is. And, he's, and basically he's saying, in those matters, I am going to end up dividing people. And please don't get me wrong either. We too must conform to some things. There are some things that we do have to conform to where the scriptures make clear. We would call that quite simply obedience to Jesus. And there are some things that we must agree on if we are to consider ourselves Christians. And we find things like that usually summed up in places like the Apostles' Creed. But we got to be careful when it's not so clear. We got to be careful when we say, this is the Christian answer. This is the Christian course of action to take. We got to be careful when we do that. We, we better be sure that the scriptures are clearly saying that. Because when you say, this is the Christian way, this is the Christian answer, basically you're saying to do otherwise is to sin. To do otherwise is to act as a non-believer. So when it comes to things like, how should I vote? How should I be engaged politically? Who should I support? Or rather, who should I not support? Those things, we must be so careful how we frame those answers. Because the moment you say, well, if you're Christian, you should do this. You are binding the conscience of your fellow believer, of your brother, of your sister. And basically you're saying, if you don't do this, you're disobeying Jesus. If, you don't, if this is the Christian thing to do and you don't do it, you're sinning. And you better be dang sure that the scriptures are clear on that. Because otherwise you are simply dividing when you shouldn't be. When, when in fact you should be allowing for freedom. Instead you're dividing. We got to ask ourselves that. Are we unduly dividing our fellow brothers and sisters? And you know, there's, the Bible warns us about this. In Titus chapter 3 verse 10, Apostle Paul says this. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. And of course, this is within the context of the church that Apostle Paul is saying this. And it's a very serious warning. And it's one that should be taken seriously. It is a big deal to divide Christians over matters that we actually have freedom to disagree about. Something else that stood out to me that's pretty interesting as I studied this psalm, uh, especially as I studied this word unity uh, in, from verse 1, when brothers dwell in unity. 
as I mentioned before, that, that word can simply mean to be together, togetherness. But I also found that the way that, ver- that word is used, uh, especially in the Psalms of David, is pretty interesting. In, in a few other Psalms, we see, we see this. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 2, King David talks about how the kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord. And that word together is that same word unity that we have in our passage. In Psalm 31, 13, David speaks of his own enemies whispering and scheming together against him. Once again, the same word. Psalm 41, 7 similarly says, uh, David says, all who hate me whisper together about me. And what we see is, at least sometimes, this word is used, this word unity is used in a way in which people are united against someone. They are rallied together against someone. And through that, they have unity. And I don't think you need it. It's just, I think even apart from the Bible, we often see that. And what this tells us is that unity does mean we have a common enemy. We do. We do have a common enemy. I was watching a documentary about North Korea on TV, the the country of North Korea. And the historian being interviewed was saying how early on in North Korea's history, the leaders of that country were able to unite their people despite the poor conditions and their small stature as a country uh, by rallying all of them around a common enemy, of course, namely the U.S., and that's how, they, that's how they were able to gain all this support and power during their early history. And I'm sure you've seen uh, just some of the most divisive voices in the media, who also sometimes happen to be the most popular voices in the media, they're very good at rallying like-minded people against and around a common enemy. And we have to ask ourselves, who is our common enemy? Who is your common enemy? I want to ask you first, not what should the answer be, but who is your common enemy? If I, if I woke you up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. and said, who's your enemy? What would you say? What would be your first knee-jerk reaction? Who is your common enemy? Well, let me tell you right now that we too, as God's people, as Christians, are called to unity against a common enemy. But here is our true common enemy. The first one is Satan. Yes, Satan must be our common enemy. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Over and over again, the scriptures refer to Satan as the enemy or as the adversary. And spiritual warfare is very real. In fact, later in this year, we're going to have a whole sermon series on spiritual warfare. And Satan is our enemy and he loves to divide us. He loves to divide us. He's been doing it ever since the Garden of Eden where he uh, caused Adam and Eve to be suspicious about God's intentions towards them. And he caused that rift between Adam and Eve and God. And then of course, Satan would divide Adam and Eve themselves. He would divide them and cause them to throw each other under the bus. And we saw history's first dysfunctional family. And let me tell you once again, for all of our married couples and those who are looking forward to being married, when you are fighting, and I'm sure you do fight, and maybe you're fighting even more 
because we're stuck at home. When you're in the thick of tension and, and anger towards each other, and, and all of us experience that, I do want to encourage you, please take, a, please take a step back and recognize that your husband, your wife, is not the enemy. That Satan is the enemy in that situation. And Satan loves to see you treating each other and viewing each other as the enemy instead of him. Satan loves for you to forget that he's even doing, doing anything. And he'd rather see you guys at war with each other. The scriptures tell us that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you think he's not doing that in your marriage? You think he doesn't want to do that? He's not aiming to do that in your marriage? You think he's not aiming to do that in political disagreements? Of course he is, because he is prowling around like a roaring lion. Our first common enemy must be sane, but there is another. Our second common enemy must be our own sin. It must be our own sin. Not other people's sin, but we must make our own sin the enemy. And when we do that, Jesus actually tells us that then you will be able to see clearly to address even the sins of others around you, of your spouse, of your family, of, of, of other people out there. But he says, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But you got you to gotta address your own sin first. You got to be repenting first. And then you can start talking about the problems you see around you. If you are a Christian, let me tell you right now, you are not qualified to talk about and address what's wrong with your spouse, what's wrong with your parents, what's wrong with those other people out there, those people of that group. You are not qualified to talk about and point out those things until you have done the hard work of addressing what is wrong with yourself and taking that to Jesus. We call that personal repentance. Pastor Andrew Wang spoke wonderfully about that just two Sundays ago. Please go back and listen to that because until we've done that, unity will be so hard. Until we've done that, our posture will not be right. Another pastor, John Piper, in 2005 gave a sermon about civil disobedience. And, and I rediscovered this quote, this gem of a quote from that sermon not too long ago. And in that sermon, he's talking specifically about civil disobedience. But I think the, the posture, the heart he speaks of in this quote is so appropriate for any situation where we have disagreements and differences. Let me just read you this. Here's what he said in that sermon from so many years ago. We are people of the cross. Our Lord submitted to crucifixion willingly to save his enemies. We owe our eternal life to him. We are forgiven sinners. This takes the swagger out of our protest. This takes, or it takes the arrogance out of our resistance. And if after every other means has failed, we must disobey for the sake of love and justice, we will first remove the log from our own eye, which will cause enough pain and tears to soften our indignation into a humble, quiet, but unshakable no. 
The greatest battle we face is not overcoming unjust laws, but becoming this kind of people. So good. That that is so good. And when Satan and our own sin becomes our common enemy, it will change us. It will change our posture and it will make us more and more humble instead of hateful. It will make us more and more nuanced and not noisy. Just adding to the noise that we see from those news outlets and social media posts. When Satan and our own sin becomes the common enemy, we'll become more persuasive and not polarizing. Even submitting to one another rather than silencing one another. Let me tell you, if Satan loves to divide, if that's one of his greatest strategies, then Unity will be our great strategy for the sake of bringing the gospel to the world. If Satan's strategy is to divide, then our gospel strategy will be our unity. Our unity will be refreshing and fruitful, just like the dew of Mount Hermon. Right, That, that dew from that tall mountain would, would fall on the land around him and, and it would refresh the, the dry land and it would Bring about vegetation and it would bear, the land would bear fruit because of that dew. That's the idea of this illustration. And basically the psalmist is saying, our unity is just like that. It will be refreshing to the people around us. It will be refreshing because it will be something so different than what the rest of the world does when we have unity. And it will be fruitful because it will bear fruit for the gospel. People will see that and they'll be drawn to Jesus. I recently read a quote from uh, Pastor Tim Keller where he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, unless the world sees people getting along inside the churches and between the churches who normally wouldn't get along outside in the world, why wouldn't people just think we're just like any other cultural or political group? Basically, he's saying, if we follow the same allegiances and, we, have the, and we, we draw the same dividing lines and make, we make the same enemies that the rest of the world makes and the people out in the world make? Why should anyone think the church is different than any other group or club or political party? Why wouldn't they think we're any different? But when you show, when you display this unity that only God can give, we show that there is a higher allegiance than the things of this world. I used to have, a, or not, I, I still have a friend. I have a friend who used to say, uh, when he would like close us in prayer or lead us in prayer, he would say something along the lines of, God, thank you for bringing me together with these people that I would not be friends with outside of the church. And he would pray that. And, you know, I would kind of poke fun at him saying, was that like a veiled insult? Saying like, you know, we're, we wouldn't be cool enough to be your friend if not for the church. But of course, his point is so true and so beautiful. Because of Jesus, I have these brothers and sisters now that maybe the world would tell me we shouldn't be friends. Maybe the world would tell me we should even be enemies. But because of Jesus, these are truly my brothers and sisters. And that's gonna be such a refreshing witness to the world. Please do not buy into those polarizing voices that try to convince you that it's always us versus them. We have a much greater voice of our good shepherd. And he said it best in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know 
that you are my disciples. All people, as in the people of this world, will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you have love for one another. He does not say if you just have love in general for certain people. But he says, if you have love for one another. This is, he's speaking of unity here. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It's going to make people see. It's going to be refreshing to the world. And they're going to see that. And they're going to say, these people must belong to something else. Or rather, to someone else that is so much greater than everything else. When they see, if you have love for one another. When they see your blessed unity. It is going to be our great witness to this world. So first, unity does not mean that we all have to be the same. Secondly, unity does mean we have a common enemy, which is Satan and our own sin. And that leads us to a greater posture that actually refreshes and brings the gospel to the world. And here's the last thing. Unity is a gospel grace. Unity is a gospel grace. In the last statement of our psalm, in Psalm 133, chapter, uh, verse 3, It says, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing. For there, in that place of unity, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's the Lord that commands this. It's the Lord that dictates this blessed unity. It's a gift. The Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, uh, in his commentary on this passage, he writes about how in both of the images of Aaron and Mount Hermon, uh, we see the, the oil and the dew descending. It's starting from above and, and it goes down from Aaron's head to below, from the high Mount Hermon to below. And he writes this, true unity, like all good gifts, is from above, bestowed rather than contrived, a blessing far more than an achievement. True unity is a gift from God. It is a gospel grace. And that gospel connection cannot be lost on us because the the image we see is the image of Aaron and the oil poured on his head. And of course, we recognize Aaron was a priest for God's people. Aaron's ministry was one in which he he was like the middleman between God and sinful human beings. And that oil was poured and anointed on him to consecrate him, to set him apart for that priestly ministry. And it's, it's, it's in the ministry of the priests like Aaron where the Lord would assure his people of the forgiveness of sins and the, and the blessing of his favor. And not only assure them of that, but grant that to them. Through this ministry of the priests. And of course for you and me. We have someone so much greater than Aaron. We have the great high priest Jesus Christ. Whose ministry is greater than any other earthly priest. Whose ministry is more powerful. Whose ministry is more permanent. And this great high priest would lay down his power. He would lay down his rights. And instead of oil poured on his head, he would wear a crown of thorns. Instead of oil dripping down his beard, he would have sour wine and he would hang on a cross and he would lose that precious unity that he shared with God the Father. And he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And it's in that supreme act of love and sacrifice that secures for us our salvation and it secures for us the forgiveness of sins, the the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And that that is ultimately what unites us like no other. Brothers and sisters, yes, please be politically engaged. Yes, please vote according to your consciences. That's, we're called to do that as God's people because we're called to be good citizens where we are. So yes, please do those things. And yes, you can have strong views. You can have strong preferences about worship and about politics and what's best for your family and what's best for our country. But when Christ is your life, when Christ is your ultimate identity, when Christ is your God, you will hold to those views in a way that is different than the way the world holds to their views. You will hold to these views in a way that's different from what we see in our newsfeed. It'll be different than what we see in, our, in those social media posts. And we can even disagree with each other in a way that's still united, that's still humble, that's still loving and gracious and fair. And we could still be brothers and sisters. And when Christ is your life, when Christ is your highest allegiance, you can even agree with one political party one day and agree with the other political party another day. Because you have a higher allegiance. You have a higher loyalty than any party, than any group, than any movement. Oh, how good and pleasant it is. It truly is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. When different parts of the body, when different people from different sides of whichever spectrum can dwell together and be together. Because after all, Jesus Christ brought together sinners and a holy God. Those two cannot be more different. But through our great high priest. We have this relationship with God. We have peace with God. When we were his enemies. And if this Jesus. Would dwell with us. If this Jesus would even dwell in us. By his Holy Spirit. Surely. We can dwell together. In blessed unity. In the unity that only God provides. Let's pray. Lord, we do recognize, oh, we long for greater unity around us. Lord, we do recognize with a great soberness that Satan truly is so proactive and he seeks to divide. He's looking to devour his prey. But God, we thank you that we have this blessedness, this grace that you've bestowed a unity that no one can take away, that is greater than any dividing line drawn in this world because you've given us Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Lord, I pray that as we continue to cling to him, would you give us clearer eyes to see our own sin? And would that in turn cause us to be able to see even more clearly how we seek to make things better around us, in our families, in our country. But Lord, help us never to do that apart from Jesus, apart from the gospel. 
we ask that you would continue to bring us together. Lord, not, not so that we agree on every little thing, but simply be, so that we would cling together on the greatest agreement, the agreement we have in Jesus and about Jesus and because of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.